for Friday, February 24th. This is KUAR's Week in Review podcast. Welcome, I'm Karen Trico-Stewart of KUAR, joined by Chris Hickey of KUAR News. And coming up... Angry constituents appear at congressional town halls. Voter ID regulations go to the Senate and likely to voters. The latest with legislation to allow guns on Arkansas campuses. And the Arkansas Supreme Court strikes down a local anti-discrimination law. All that and more, stay with us. All right, Chris, it's Friday. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Karen? Good. Uh, First of all, let's go to the topic of uh, town hall meetings. So we had members of Congress. They were back home this week. Uh, They were on break, and many were getting an earful from angry constituents, including uh, Senator Tom Cotton and Representative Womack of Arkansas. Can you tell us a little bit about what occurred at those town halls? Yeah, sure. And these kind of town halls are, are closely mirroring what's happening around the country um, with the election of Donald Trump and the GOP majorities in Congress. A lot of people who are dissatisfied with the policies of Republicans and of the Trump administration in the first couple months of office are uh, showing up demanding answers of their Congress people. Uh, And we're seeing the same thing happening here in Arkansas. On Tuesday, uh, Representative Steve Womack of Arkansas's 3rd Congressional District, which encompasses much of Northwest Arkansas, uh, held a town hall in the uh, town of West Fork. Um, It was a smaller one than what we've seen in other places, but a lot of angry constituents, people demanding answers about what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act and the uh, GOP Congress. Um, Is Donald Trump and his conflicts of interest, uh, is he going to be held accountable by uh, GOP members of Congress? And you you hear a lot of shouting, a lot of uh, angry remarks by people. In Womack's case, a little over 100 people showed up. It was at the West Fork uh, City Hall, so it was kind of a small building. Um, our content partner, KUAF in Fayetteville, Kyle Kellams, uh, was there and covered it. You can find his report on our website. A day later, our junior U.S. Senator, Tom Cotton, held a town hall in Springdale at Springdale High School in the auditorium. Much larger event. Um, this was an auditorium that I think seated at least 2,000. It was filled over capacity. Mm-hmm. It was streamed online. A lot of angry people showed up to that one. And um, people demanding answers about, you know, what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act, what uh, Tom Cotton thinks about the immigration policies of Donald Trump, uh, resettling refugees, a uh, host of other issues. I think that one... It was scheduled to go about an hour and a half. I think it ended up being closer to two hours. Um, Let's go to a a clip here. Um, We're going to play a clip from uh, Katie McFarland. She's a a woman who lives in Fayetteville, uh, has a rare genetic disorder um, that confines her to a wheelchair. And she had uh, questions about the Affordable Care Act and what's going to become of it. You talk a lot about the repeal but you have not gone into specifics on replacement. So my question is, will you commit today to replacement protections for those Arkansans like me who will die or lose their quality of life 
or otherwise be unable to be participating citizens trying to get their part of the American dream, will you commit to replacements in the same way that you have committed to the repeal? Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Let's take a couple more comments or questions about health care. How about we do this? How about we do this? I know, hold on, some of you have your hands up. Can we? Let's, why don't we do this? Why don't we, why don't we let Katie decide? Do you, do you want me to address your points now or do you want me to take more points? I think you should listen to them. Okay. So, Katie, I'm, I'm committed, after repealing Obamacare, to health care reform that fixes all In the problems. In what way will you prevent coverage so gaps? You asked everyone. Thank you. You asked, you asked everyone to stand. Will you prevent coverage gaps? Will you have a replacement in place to prevent coverage gaps the second the repeal goes through? You, Katie, you asked everyone. You asked everyone to stand up if they had been impacted by Obamacare. And a lot of you did. Not all of you did, which was a mistake. Everyone in this, everyone in this room has been hurt or helped I by Obamacare. I have only been helped. Obamacare saved my life, Senator. Nobody here, nobody, nobody here has not been affected by Obamacare. Yes, so you talked about it saved my life, Senator. And you talk about some of the problems with our health care system that predated Obamacare, like a pre-existing, like the inability of people to get pre-existing condition coverage. hear there that they're having a testy exchange about Obamacare. And um, let's pick it up a few minutes into that exchange. Any, any approach we take is going to ensure that people who have continuous coverage cannot... How will you ensure that, though, Senator, specifically? Well, the insurance... You're just restating my question, Senator. Insurance companies can't do it. Insurance companies can't do that today. 
They won't no, be they able can't, but if you repeal the ACA, they will be able to unless you take measures to prevent that. What specifically will you do to prevent that? That if you, if you have insurance today, you cannot be denied insurance tomorrow. I'm not asking about today, Senator. I'm asking about once the ACA is repealed. What will you do, Senator, to prevent that in the future once you So if you have... If you, if, if you regulate insurance companies to say that they cannot deny someone with a pre-existing condition if that person has insurance, then they can't deny you when you move from one job to another or when you that move from a job. That specific regulation is the ACA, Senator. So what will you do to continue that after you repeal it? That is what I'm asking. Will you answer it's the question, it's, it's, it's called a continuous coverage requirement. I know what it's called, Senator. I'm very familiar with health care with my condition. <laughs> And so what you heard there was Tom Cotton kind of struggling in a way to answer the question, um, kind of starting on the path towards uh, repeating a lot of GOP talking points about Obamacare um, and plans for replacement and repeal and continuing coverage. But the crowd really wasn't having much of that. Um, I think uh, Senator Cotton eventually said that, you know, the members of Congress would do what they could to ensure that people who uh, have coverage now, you know, maintain their coverage or a certain um, equal amount of coverage. And, um, you know, there's a question about pre-existing conditions, whether people would still be covered. I think uh, he asserted that, you know, pre-existing conditions would still be covered under uh, any new law. Mm -hmm. um, I will say in conclusion that there's this group called Indivisible Arkansas, uh, which is kind of modeled on on this uh, national, uh, there's a website and it's also kind of a guide called the Indivisible Guide for, for organizing in response or resisting the Trump administration. And there have been uh, a lot of local little chapters. Um, for instance, one of the main reasons this town hall uh, was held by Cotton uh, is because this group called Ozark Indivisible had picketed his um, one of his congressional offices in northwest Arkansas and had been denied you know entry or a meeting and eventually there's some compromise uh, reached and Cotton um, and his staff agreed to hold a town hall. They actually had to move it into a larger venue because of the expected crowd. A lot of the organizers of it um, kind of coming out of this uh, women's march that happened shortly after the inauguration of Donald Trump, where there was this call, big call to organize. And um, a lot of people who attended that and attended training sessions after that uh, was held here in Little Rock uh, are going on to, uh, you know, start up little chapters. There's one in like Southwest Little um, Arkansas in Arkadelphia. There's one here in Central Arkansas. The Central Arkansas group is trying to hold a town hall this Sunday. They invited uh, Cotton as well as Senator John Bozeman and uh, U.S. Representative French Hill. Um, I believe that none of those three have uh, responded or agreed to uh, appear at that town hall, which is going to be at an Episcopal church. I forget which one uh, in Little Rock. I will say that uh, Senator Bozeman and U.S. Representative Hill 
haven't had quite the the same uh, dare say guts to to face <laughs> large crowds like uh, Senator Cotton did, and they're holding um, telephone town halls in the in the future. I don't have much detail on those. You know, we'll see what happens if if this pressure will will get to the um, the congressman and if they'll they'll be holding more of these kinds of events. Right, and there definitely seemed to be some level of discomfort. Um, you know, the crowd asks Cotton a question. Uh, they continue going, and he's he's just kind of uh, standing there waiting for things to die down. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to give it to him a little bit because it, it takes a little bit of courage to to stand on a stage alone and face uh, 2,000-plus uh, angry citizens who are, are kind of shouting. Um, I mean, you know, it's hard to, to read into all the motivations of every individual um, attendee or or whatever, but... You know, this is kind of what, you know, a democratic system looks like. It's like people holding their public officials accountable. And I will say also this individual indivisible group uh, kind of modeled their uh, their tactics off of the Tea Party, which I think you'll recall in 2009 uh, as the affordable what became the Affordable Care Act was still being debated in Congress. Um, you had a lot of uh, angry citizens from the right appearing at congressional town halls, kind of uh, with the same type of atmosphere, uh, a lot of you know yelling and <laughs> angry comments, uh, and uh, this group indivisible they they don't uh, whitewash over the fact that they are borrowing uh, the strategy from the Tea Party in um, just trying to to be out there and 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 making their voices heard. And so President Trump has tweeted that uh, these are all, well, basically stunts, these town hall meetings. Um, has Have we heard from uh, Senator Cotton or Representative Womack um, in response to those sentiments? You know, I don't recall exactly. They might have, but um, many of the participants, at least in the Cotton event, they uh, showed up with signs saying that I'm not a paid protester, and they gave their zip code. And I think there was actually one portion of the the event where at the beginning, uh, Cotton, you know, was kind of getting a sense for where the crowd had, you know, where people, individuals had come from or where they had driven from. And he was asking, you know, who had driven the farthest? And he was, you know, people were raising their hands. Well, it came from Little Rock. It came from Benton. And so, like, I don't think he or Womack disputed that a majority, if not all, of the people were just average citizens. All right, Chris, and you've been covering the Arkansas legislature this week. Uh, let's discuss voter ID, which I believe uh, now heads to the Senate. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, the voter ID uh, legislation, it's a proposed constitutional amendment. So if passed by the House and the Senate, uh, it could appear on the uh, 2018 November general election ballot. And uh, what this is, is modeled off of uh, voter ID laws across the country, uh, requiring voters to show identification, photo identification, when they uh, go to cast a ballot. Uh, I guess one thing to note is that this is a proposed constitutional amendment. And if we'll recall, uh, back in 2013, the legislature passed a similar kind of law but it was not a proposed constitutional amendment. It was simply an act uh, from the legislature that was later struck down by the state Supreme Court uh, because 
they cited an issue uh, where in the uh, founding document of our constitution, our state constitution, there are uh, several uh, requirements for voters uh, and proof of identity is not one of them. Um, the way this amendment is worded is that it requires people to prove their identity within the registration process. So it's kind of a workaround to uh, fulfill one of those key requirements that's stated in the original Constitution. And so it's passed the House. Uh, it still has to go to the Senate. And um, with these proposed constitutional amendments, the governor does not have to sign them. They just refer to the voters, and that's how they get enacted. And then another thing that uh, came up this week but has been brought up for, for many weeks is uh, guns on campus. Mm -hmm. And I believe there were some amendments to uh, what's known as the campus carry bill. Um, yep. Um, so uh, House Bill 1249, sponsored by Republican Representative Charlie Collins out of Fayetteville, has been uh, in the House uh, and the Senate for a few weeks now. It's been debated. It's one of the most controversial issues in the legislature right now. Basically, the original uh, bill uh, allowed faculty and staff at public universities and college campuses, uh, public colleges in Arkansas, to carry concealed weapons if they're uh, concealed carry license holders. So they could uh, come to work uh, with a gun. The intent behind this is to prevent uh, or add an extra level of security in case um, unfor you know, the, the unfortunate case uh, potentially of a mass shooter or active shooter coming onto campus, um, while at the same time, you know, opponents argue that this will just increase the likelihood that accidents will happen, campus police wouldn't know who's who, et cetera, et cetera. So what's happened uh, lately, last week in the Senate, uh, Senator Jeremy Hutchinson, Republican, um, introduced an amendment that would uh, require these faculty and staff who choose to carry concealed weapons to uh, undergo 16 hours of active shooter training, uh, training that would be regulated by the state police. Now, Collins and his co-sponsor in the Senate both opposed this, but it did get added to uh, in the Senate, this amendment. So over the weekend and early this week, Collins and Garner uh, met with the governor, I think with Hutchinson as well, um, and tried to come up with uh, you know what they call a compromise. And uh, basically what this compromise is, uh, is that it ex actually extends the rights to concealed carry firearms to students who are at least 25 years of age. So previously the bill um, only restrict, uh, restricted the concealed carrying to faculty and staff and did not allow students. So now there's a provision in there that allows students up to 25 years of age. Um, you know, of course, the opponents of the original campus carry bill said this is not a compromise at all. This is actually, you know, this is worse than what we wanted. But, um, you know, Republicans in the legislature have a, a pretty solid majority, and many of them are very big uh, Second Amendment people and generally support campus carry. Um, and so uh, this is, you know, just part of the process. So the bill... Uh, has not yet been voted on uh, fully in the in the Senate or the House. The amended version of it has not gone back to the House. So we're still waiting to see what happens. And um, one side note, there was a, an attempt on uh, Thursday. <laughs> Senator Linda Collins-Smith, Republican out of Pocahontas, um, tried to introduce an amendment uh, that would 
basically uh, remove the provisions that restrict the concealed carrying just to faculty, staff, and these students who are of a certain age. Her uh, amendment would have uh, extended the rights to any concealed carry holder who's licensed by the state to walk on a campus and carry. Um, but that got kind of defeated in in the full house or full Senate um, yesterday on Thursday. Uh, she she's she's the vice chairman of the uh, chairwoman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, was which is where the uh, the bill gets its you know it starts out in the Senate. Uh, she was trying to send it back to, into committee so she could add this amendment, but again, the um, the, the sponsors resisted it. Uh, it died. I spoke with Trent Garner uh, last uh, or yesterday Thursday, and he said uh, the main bill should be coming up for a vote in the Senate on Monday. So. And there's opposition uh, to the bill by the NRA, I understand? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so like I mentioned, uh, part of this process was adding the 16-hour uh, active shooter training requirement. After that happened, uh, the NRA came out with a statement uh, saying they no longer support the bill uh, because of this. And, um, you know, it really hasn't phased the, uh, the sponsors at all um, thus far. I mean, before, in the previous version, the NRA was uh, speaking for it in committee. Their lobbyist was. And I think also Linda Collins-Smith's uh, recent amendment was a kind of attempt to remedy that situation to get the NRA to support it again. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're not supporting it, but the sponsors, um, you know, haven't really expressed any dissatisfaction at at that fact. <laughs> and then another issue is uh, tort reform. And it seems like um, there's general agreement that uh, the medical liability system is costly and inefficient, but there's just so much disagreement on the specifics of the problem and the details of the solution. Yeah, so with the tort reform uh, resolution, it's um, gotten, I mean, I as far as the most impassioned debates that I've seen in this legislative session, um, you know, some of them have occurred over this uh, campus carry amendment. But uh, I think the most impassioned ones I've seen have been around this tort reform bill, which is not a bill, it's a resolution. It's, all, again, another proposed constitutional amendment that could be on the uh, 2018 ballot along with the voter ID law uh, or resolution. It does three things primarily. Um, in medical injury or workplace injury lawsuits, uh, it limits the award amounts uh, that could be given for uh, things like punitive damages, non-compensatory damages, non-economic damages. These are all legal terms for, you know, different courtroom settlement types. Uh, non-economic damages, for instance, generally defined as like pain and suffering, something that's not, that can't be really quantified. Um, originally, this bill limited these damages to $250,000 in an award. There's an amendment introduced this week that increased that cap to $500,000, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, the uh, second thing it does is limit attorney's fees to uh, a third of the net amount uh, recovered in a lawsuit. Uh, right now, there is no um, you know limit on how much attorney's contingency fees uh, can, uh, can be in Arkansas. And the third thing is that it gives the legislature authority over rulemaking in courtroom procedure. Uh, this is a, a th uh, an authority that currently is held by the state Supreme Court. 
And so this is uh, a popular bill or popular resolution in the uh, Republican-controlled legislature. It has, I think, something like 53 co-sponsors in the House, for instance. It easily passed out of the Senate uh, last week, although there is a substantial amount of debate. And it kind of, the debate around it cuts across party lines to a certain extent. You see some Republicans uh, who are making impassioned cases against it, even though it's a Republican-sponsored measure. Um, people generally believe or generally argue that uh, who are against it, and this you know, can include the president of the Arkansas Bar Association, for instance, or um, you know, a, a state uh, representative, um, that you know, we shouldn't be placing caps on you know, what a jury decides are placing limitations on what a jury who's heard a case about some, say, nursing home negligence, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, giving a fair amount, um, you know, awarding a fair amount to a plaintiff uh, in a case. And you can't, you know, they argue that you can't uh, put a value on that, on that life or that injury or that suffering right. that could have resulted. Yeah, so in other words, um, they're saying that it'll make... Um, a serious medical mistake affordable, essentially. Yeah, precisely. And, um, you know, business groups like the Chamber of Commerce are backing this. Um, They argue that, you know, this by placing limitations on the the amount of awards, it allows businesses to, you know, really determine ahead of time, you know, what they could be liable for in in a lawsuit. And uh, it creates a healthier legal climate uh, for businesses. Uh, and so business groups like the Chamber of Commerce have signed on to, or have supported this and have testified in committee in, uh, in favor. I'm going to play here a cut of the House sponsor of this bill, uh, Representative Ballinger. And um, here he is. He's kind of attempting to counter argue this idea of putting a value on human life. And this was him speaking in the state agencies committee on um, Thursday, where it advanced on a 14-3 vote. Protecting life was one of the reasons why I came down here. And by golly, I think this resolution goes a lot further to protecting life than it does to to not protecting life. And it's almost offensive as somebody who who is passionate about protecting life, and that cuts me to a chord. You know, I have a wife who's a stay-at-home mom of seven kids. Well, one is out, you know, not, no longer in the house, only six. Six kids, homeschools them. Is her life not valuable to me? It is, it's invaluable. It can't have a price put on it. It's limitless. Now, one of the things that I think is a little bit disingenuous is to act like there's no compensatory damages that can be put on a housewife. Housewives have a lot of value monetary value. She does so many things that enables me to go to work. If she wasn't back home in Berryville right now taking care, actually she's in Tulsa taking her grandma, but let's pretend like she's back home in Berryville taking care of the kids, right? If she was doing that, I couldn't be down here. I couldn't be, couldn't go to work every day. There's monetary value associated with her life. And if every, you know, trial lawyer in here is willing to, to say, okay, we'll no longer try to put a, 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 a monetary value on, on the time of a housewife, I think that that'd actually be a mistake. You know, they do, and they occasionally do. Now, is it harder to prove? Well, yeah, it is. You got to get in all sorts of different type of evidence, but, you know, you, you know, the cost of an Annie and, you know, the money that, that, you know, that she's able to save because, but I tell you, my wife has got a monetary value. And, and you know, if we're going to have the argument, let's have it on the up and up. 
And, and I don't want to, I mean, this thing is, I don't want to discount somebody because they think it's a, a life issue and they see, you know, but every time that a jury deliberates, they put a value on human life. All we're doing is saying, hey, this is a policy decision that I think we should set here to be able to create some sort of standards, some sort of uniformity. And so that was uh, Representative Ballinger, Bob Ballinger, Republican uh, from Northwest Arkansas. And to illustrate kind of this divide within the GOP about this, and I will note that only a minority of GOP members of the legislature are really opposed to this, but the ones who are are very vocal. And I'll play here Republican uh, Douglas House. He's a representative from North Little Rock. He takes issue with this idea of stripping the right away from the jury uh, in making these deliberations. And he also, you know, had some things to say about uh, what the legislature is essentially doing, uh, you know, placing limitations on the value of human life. So basically we're saying, listen, you can have a jury trial if you want to, but you're just going to get $500,000. That's exactly what it says, what this amendment says. So I can think of cases where punitive damages would certainly be warranted. I remember the letter from... I believe it was an automobile manufacturer, uh, internal memo that a lawyer friend of mine obtained. Uh, some of y'all remember Tab Turner. He may be in the room, I don't know. You got a lawyer from, I believe it was one of the automobile companies. He said, yeah, we know this automobile is going to kill several hundred people by burning them to death. But you know, we can take out an insurance policy and we can cover those deaths and we can still make millions and millions and millions of dollars and we'll let the insurance company pay off for the poor people that get burned to death. Now, there's a good case for punitive damages, but each one of those under this amendment, because it's limited to just a certain percentage of the actuals, I mean, how much a child is a financial liability? A housewife, according to the law of non-economic damages that's set forth in this amendment, despite what Mr. Ballinger says, I love my wife and she is worth a lot to me, but according to that non-economic damage definition, not very much, $500,000, that's it. Death of a child, continual pain. I, you know, there's some people in this world that just hurt all the time, from the date of their injury to the day they die. And it's either massive amount of narcotics or continual therapy. Well, just $500,000. Sorry you feel so bad. Sorry you hurt so bad. You know, just going about your life. Have a good life. Take your pills. Would you take $500,000 if I was sitting here cleaning my pistol and shot your privates off so you couldn't have a sex life? Especially you young folks. $500,000. No sex. Rest of your life. Sorry. Feel real bad about that. But that's the limits. So that was Republican uh, Douglas House. Um, on Friday, as we record this, just earlier today, uh, there was an attempt made on the uh, House floor to introduce an amendment that failed. Um, that would, and this was also a Republican uh, representative, Jim Gazaway, out of Paragould, who's an opponent of this tort reform measure, uh, tried to introduce an amendment that um, actually puts a minimum cap on uh, our minimum um, on the non-economic damages, and he wanted them to be $1 million. He was actually a, a, a trial attorney. He also served as a deputy prosecutor. But 
uh, that really that failed. It, it had a lot of debate on on Friday, and um, you know his, his amendment would have done a, several other things, in, including um, removing limitations on um, you know awards in cases like of gross negligence or uh, intentional wrongs. Um, Ballinger, uh, Bob Ballinger introduced an amendment on, on Thursday that increased the initial cap on awards from 250000 to 500000 after he said he had some discussions with lawmakers who were concerned that the cap was too low. Um, he wanted to do that and to ensure its passage. So, status of this, uh, it has not yet passed out of the full House. Uh, an earlier version passed out of the Senate. And so once it passes both chambers, um, it'll be on the ballot in November 2018. Mm -hmm. And throughout debate of this, um, have you heard from members of the the medical uh, community talking about insurance rates skyrocketing, doctors going out of business, there will be less doctors in Arkansas, and then the other, the debate that we're going to practice defensive medicine. We're always going to think, well, could we be sued and then order a lot of tests, uh, doctors, that is. Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, I haven't heard as much from the medical community as much as I have from the legal community. Um, what lawyers and the Bar Association uh, have argued is that uh, with the cap on attorney's fees, what's actually going to happen is um, attorneys are going to look at a case that's probably not going to make a lot of money or in terms of, of an award, and they'll They'll look, well, I mean, I, I'm going to have to weigh my options in terms of how many hours I'm going to spend on this uh, versus how much of, an, uh, of a fee I'm going to get. And they say that it's going to have a chilling effect on attorneys taking up cases against uh, industries like the medical community nursing home uh, cases and because they don't, they don't see it as being something in their interest to pursue uh, based on just an economic uh, point of view. I mean, that's that that kind of paints a really I don't know maybe negative picture of lawyers and the legal community in general. But uh, you know, a lot of opponents of this uh, bill have have argued that you know, in any other profession like real estate or I don't know selling furniture, we the legislature or you know the government or you know the legislative bodies don't typically. Um, you know, uh, place limitations on, on, you know, what two individual parties uh, contract with each other. You know, this is kind of impeding on uh, free market principles. I hear a lot of conservative arguments in that case. Um, you know, as far as the medical community, you know, actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking right now at this uh, letter sent out by the um, Arkansas uh, State Chamber of Commerce in support of this. And they uh, signed by Randy Zook, who's the president of that organization, and has uh, a list of names and organizations uh, representing a, a variety of industries throughout um, Arkansas. And in support of this, um, we've got a member of the Arkansas Hospital Association, or representative from that. The Arkansas Osteopathic Medical Association is signed on in support of this. The Arkansas Dental Association is signed on. Arkansas Pharmacists Association is signed on. So, Really, I, I think the medical community uh, does see it as a help. Uh, so, Karen, um, we've kind of been following this issue in the last couple of podcasts, and you've been filling us into this I, this issue of um, collecting sales taxes on internet purchases that are uh, made with companies that are 
based mostly out of state. And there are a couple of bills in the legislature right now. They haven't been uh, signed into law yet, um, both on the House and Senate side, that deal with this issue. Let's, um, let's take a moment to kind of discuss the, the similarities and differences of what we see in these two uh, bills. Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, a bill that originated in the Senate by Senator Jake Files, and it's based on legislation in South Dakota that um, they think will be legally challenged. So the future of it is a little bit more uncertain. It's easier to argue against. But there's also House Bill 1388, which is uh, currently in the Senate by Representative Dan Douglas. And um, it's different because it was actually written uh, based on a Colorado law. And that law um, on internet sales tax was upheld by the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And so there is some legal precedent there. Um, And the case uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, we stand by your decision, and they actually didn't hear it. So it would seem between the two that the Colorado law, or the one based on the Colorado law, would, uh, would go further and wouldn't have as many arguments, one would think. Yeah, and I, one of the interesting things in this debate so far, and we should also mention, I guess, that um, as a result of the 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 law of the bills being filed, uh, Amazon. I think we mentioned this last week that mm-hmm. Amazon uh, says it will start um, uh, retaining some uh, you know sales tax uh, and sending it to uh, the revenue to the state of Arkansas. Um, but I think that's the only retailer that's uh, made that promise thus far. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this debate is um, the kind of, again, this kind of conservative ideological divide in, in discussing uh, sales to internet sales taxes. You have, on the one hand, kind of uh, fiscal conservatives who, uh, you know, are sponsoring the legislation and are basically arguing that, you know, look, um, you know, it's unfair for these uh, companies to be uh, taking away business from you know brick and mortar places here in the state, uh, and they should be paying their fair share of sales taxes, uh, and it would also help our, our you know our revenue forecast in the state of Arkansas, which is not looking that good right now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you'll have groups, uh, advocacy groups like Americans for Prosperity, uh, vehemently anti-tax, or uh, the group uh, founded by Grover Norquist, the National Guys. Um, who uh, sends uh, legislators and Congress people uh, pledges uh, to to say they'll never raise taxes? Um, you know, it's opposed by them. You know, and they basically argue, you know, look, we're conservatives. We don't we don't raise taxes on people. This is uh, disingenuous um, to you know say raise you know some taxes in order to make up for. Uh, taxes that are cut in other areas. We should be continually striving to cut taxes uh, in order to, um, I guess, uh, create a uh, economic situation that is, uh, you know, quote unquote, pro-growth, you know, or allowing economic activity to flourish. Although, you know, you could um, you know, have a debate on that <laughs> point in particular. But, it, you know, it's interesting just to, just to see um, how that's playing out. Right. To which uh, U.S. Republican uh, Representative Steve Womack would say, um, well, it's it's not a new tax, so so stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, well, I mean, I guess uh, the governor, I believe, is um, supporting at least uh, the idea of uh, 
an internet sales tax uh, for online retailers. Right. Uh, but we'll see which one of these gets to his desk, if either of them do. So. Mm-hmm. And it seems that Files is asking for uh, the governor's help. And the governor released a statement saying that there is a, a philosophical difference as to whether um, any new revenue generated from the sales tax should go to reduce the income tax rate, which um, he said is his preference, or if it should go to new spending. And I, I uh, think that was a large part of the debate. Where's this money going to go? Yeah. Um, all right. So lastly, uh, Karen, we had a major ruling from the state Supreme Court regarding a civil rights ordinance uh, from the city of Fayetteville. Uh, This is something that's been litigated in Washington County Circuit Court, Mm -hmm. um, and it's made its way to the Supreme Court in Arkansas regarding a civil rights ordinance on LGBT protections. Um, Could you kind of take us through, uh, you know, how the ruling came down and, uh, you know, what the implications are? Yeah, so the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, struck down a local law that protected um, people in Fayetteville from discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And Arkansas is just one of a a handful of states where it is illegal for local governments to pass anti-discrimination laws that cover classes of people that are not already protected um, under state law. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this law that the court cites is the uh, 2015 law passed um, by the legislature. Um, You know, I don't know if anyone recalls, but, you know, back then, not only did we have this uh, law banning um, these uh, kind of uh, civil rights ordinances um, that aren't already codified in state law, but... Um, you know, we had a religious uh, freedom bill, uh, so-called, that drew a lot of opposition. And, you know, it, this uh, ruling kind of has implications for not just Fayetteville, because uh, a number of cities, including Little Rock, um, have passed uh, similar types of uh, non-discrimination ordinances against or for um, LGBT persons. Uh, most cities, including Little Rock, uh, kind of restrict that to the employees of the city, Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how this plays out in terms of like what this will mean to, I think, you know, close to maybe a dozen or seven to 10, uh, other cities in, in Arkansas have this. Um, I think one also, uh, point, uh, that the court ruled on was the, the constitutionality of that, uh, 2015 law, or they actually chose not to rule on the constitutionality of it because it didn't come up in the arguments. Um, uh, they said, or I think it was Associate Justice Joe Hart who wrote the opinion uh, saying that the Washington County Court would have to take that up um, uh, in order for the Supreme Court to have a say in it. Fayetteville City Attorney Kit Williams, um, he said, looking forward, um, that they're now going to focus on on challenging the constitutionality um, of the state's 2015 law um, in lower court, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just saying in conclusion, you know, part of this debate over the city ordinances and civil rights protections, uh, you know, in the state legislature uh, kind of revolves around this uh, really, uh, I would call it a flexible <laughs> debate on local control or the idea of local control. Um, I think a lot of, if you're a cynical observer of these kinds of matters, 
you would say that you know most politicians, including those uh, legislators who pass uh, laws like this, are are typically in favor of the idea of local control unless it infringes upon their personal beliefs, um, and so you kind of have this uh, test case here. I mean, you know, you see this debate over local control in like the campus carry debate, like we mentioned earlier, where uh, public universities are. Uh, uh, are, are asking for, you know, we just want the ability to have local control over what happens at our campus. And, and you know, the supporters of that bill even turn it on the flip side of that. It, it's like, well, the ultimate form of local control is with the ind individual. So if an individual wants to carry arms on campus, they can do so. Sorry, that's a bit of a tangent, but it's always interesting to see whenever that that idea of local versus state control or even federal mandates, as you see, you know, with um, the rolling back of Obama's uh, order on, on um, allowing transgender students to, you know, choose whatever bathroom they wish to, to go to in accordance with their gender identity. Um, you know, you had states, including our governor, pushing back at the that idea because it takes away local control um, from the states. So always interesting to point out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, don't I don't have any grand thesis <laughs> beyond <laughs> that. <laughs> All right, Chris. So we've been talking on some very heavy subjects and we don't want to, we want something more lighthearted for the listeners. So let's, what can we say, Chris? Well, uh, if you're looking to do something fun, I think uh, South Main Street this weekend in Little Rock will be the site of the annual Mardi Gras parade. So, you know, put on your costume, get out your beads and whatever, uh, <laughs> head down there. Uh, I know that in past years, uh, our program director, interim general manager, Nathan Vandiver, has participated in the event's uh, uh, beard contest <laughs> and has actually won it one year uh i don't know if he is this year i think he still has a beard but um, it's not as long as it was yeah so he might not be in it this year but that's always an interesting um little aspect of the parade do you think that it's that nathan is just now that he's interim general general manager he uh he has some reservations about growing out that beard it's a very good question um probably best answered by the man himself but you know, he certainly has more responsibilities now, uh, <laughs> uh, probably meeting with, uh, with a lot of important folks, so can't be uh, looking too shaggy. <laughs> right. So as we take you out, we'll continue uh, to guess why Nathan's beard isn't as long this year. Uh, thank you for listening to this week's edition of uh, the Week in Review podcast from KUAR. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Hey, hey, okay. To end the speculation here, um, so the year that I won uh, <clears throat> grand champion of the uh, beard growing, con the roots uh, beard growing competition uh, <laughs> here in Little Rock, I, I think what happened was it was the second year and uh, I dressed up and, and I did a little extra styling on my beard and stuff. It definitely wasn't the, the, the thickest or the fullest beard. So I, I think because I had stepped it up a little bit on the, uh, the, the costuming and the and the beard styling, uh, I think it it I really grabbed the judges' attention. Anyway, so I went back last year and I competed, and 
I did not stand a chance. There were actual guys who really, really care and pay attention to their uh, beard hair and uh, growing it. I just, I was blown away by the level of, of grooming abilities on display. I had no chance. <laughs> so I, it was nice to have that glory for one year. <laughs> Call it a fluke. <laughs>